0: welcome to the petro nerds podcast with your hosts trisha curtis ceo of petro nerds and ethan bellamy this show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a rocky mountain showdown brought to you by digital wildcatters
1: hello and good morning everyone today is Uh, Today is Wednesday. Um, This is August eighteenth, if I am correct. Uh, I just did a podcast yesterday, so we're doing. I'm doing some back to back today, Um, and I am deeply honored to have uh, somebody by the name of Ben Cook here today with me. Uh, This is the episode twenty six of the Petronas podcast. It is August eighteenth, twenty twenty one. WTI is hanging around the sixty six dollar levels, and uh, Ethan Bellamy cannot be with us today because he's with his family in North Carolina. But I am. I am honored to have uh, Ben Cook with BP Capital here today. And we're gonna talk about a lot of the things that um I've sort of wanted to talk with with folks about. You know, I know Chuck Gates has a has a podcast where he, you know, worked at Kane Anderson and he um discusses, gets into some of this stuff on his podcast. He also, you know, had a um a weekly um, weekly chat group on Clubhouse where they used to talk about some of this. And I know that Dan Pickering would chime in and so e- echoing some of this as well, but But Ben actually is in, he's with B Capital, and they have a couple uh, funds in particular. One is a midstream fund, and one is an energy transition fund. So we're going to talk about some of those, and really, we're just going to talk about the market. I was really um, honored to be able to talk to uh, Ben a couple weeks ago, and we discussed the market, and I thought, well, we should just be putting this on a podcast because the content's really great. And you guys know that, um, listeners probably know that I'm I'm a little bit skeptical of how, or, or have... You know, uncertainty questions around how some of these operators are valued. Um, obviously, we're seeing lots of trends in the market right now, share buybacks and everything. So, I'm gonna let um, I'm gonna let Ben give a you know a quick 30 second intro, both to, about himself and as well as about uh, BP Capital, and then we're gonna dive in.
0: Thanks very much, Tricia. It's good to be with you. And as a, a listener of the Petronerds podcast, it's a, it's a thrill to be to be joining you today. So, um, as you suggested, I'll give a brief background of my my experience uh, in the industry, and then we can dive into the funds and the strategy and our view of the energy marketplace today. I, I've been with BP Capital for uh, four years. The firm was founded under the guidance of Boone Pickens. Um, Toby Lofton started uh, BP Capital Fund Advisors under Boone's guidance uh, back in 2010. And then 2013, we launched two funds, as you mentioned, a, a midstream fund and uh, energy transition fund. Um, Prior to my time with uh, BP here, I was with a group called Mariner Investment uh, Group. They are a hedge fund, which was uh, wholly owned by Oryx. Oryx is a Japanese specialty finance company. I've managed uh, midstream uh, uh, assets there. Uh, Prior to that, I was with a family office in Dallas uh, called AG Hill Partners. It's a branch of the uh, the Hill family and uh, descendants of uh, Al Hill Jr. or Al Hill Sr., and Al Hill Jr., and uh, managed public and private uh, um, equity interests as well as uh, mineral interests. And uh, I managed uh, a a drilling uh, venture with a a partner in West Texas. Um, Prior to that, I was with um, uh, a small firm called Opsis Capital, which I was a co-founder along with two other uh, uh, gentlemen that uh, we branched off of our prior uh, positions with uh, hedge funds, Uh, I was prior to that was with Carlson Capital, a large multi-strategy hedge fund here in Dallas, uh, working specifically on the energy sector in a long, short uh, strategy capacity. And I got my start in the oil and gas research and investment uh, sector uh, with Raymond James uh, after business school. And that was uh, 1998. So, you know, Tricia, when I started in this business, everybody has a story where oil and gas uh, was back when they started. Oil was $10 in the fall of 1998. And, uh, natural gas was a dollar so we've we've 1998
1: we've, we've, east asian crisis and we're going to get <laughs> we're going to come back to that a little bit with the dot com bubble but uh yeah that, that was a really fun time with $8 a barrel in 1998.
0: Yeah, so a little more than 30 seconds on the background but um happy to continue no, on great. with the strategy uh and talk about the way we look at energy wh- which direction would you like me to to take?
1: Well, you know, I would like to so we'll we'll set the preface to this is that you know oil is it 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 just shy of, we're we're under 66 bucks today, WTI. And, you know, I, I think that there's, personally, I think that this market is one of the most unique markets we've been in, in terms of when we're thinking about stocks, right? And you BP capital, you guys largely, that's, that's what you're, you're investing in, in in various um, equities. And I think that um, a lot of people don't, really understand it. Um, you know, if you're, if you're under, if you're analyzing the oil market, that's one thing, but actually the actual stocks and investing in it is, is, um, a completely different thing. And right now we have massive, massive bifurcation in the U S upstream space where we have privates drilling and going to town as they should be doing, um, given where prices are at. And we have publics that are, you know, Supposedly, relatively more muted, and they are. They haven't. They haven't ratcheted things up, but they're still growing, and they're still using, you know, maintenance capex. And they're still growing, you know, five percent or ten percent, or you know, all of them. Basically, in their in this last uh, Q2 earnings in 2021, all of them, all the big companies which you have in, in your holdings, basically said they're at the high end of their guidance in terms of production, but not in terms of capex. And so we're all sort of nearing, you know, pushing this envelope of production. But I, I think there's. You know, interesting implications for that of, you know, we've not seen a I don't think we've seen the regulatory burdens or risk. And I would like to ask you, you know, if you've um, you know, you've been in this business a little longer than I have, and you um coming in it to it in nineteen ninety-eight, and you have obviously seen the dot com bubble. And I certainly think we do have froth on the market, not necessarily in terms of energy, certainly green tech and, and other things. Um, but we have you know, an issue where we have very low interest rates, we do have very real um, and rising inflation, and we have, um, you know, a a a, a, um, a movement against oil and gas, a movement uh, against hydrocarbons, um, which is weighing into how folks invest in it and a push toward ESG. But that push toward ESG is, is nuanced and it's messy, you know, and it could be operators talking about ESG or it could be folks investing directly in renewables or particularly, uh, you know, what they – Talk about as ESG funds, and then we have this whole regulatory burden, which I believe is is higher than it's probably ever been. And I say that because I don't think we've had an administration that's you know pushed the you know Treasury. We have Janet Yellen who has you know uh, folks that are working on climate change within within the Treasury, um, and we also have the SEC looking to actually regulate you know actually. Disclose GHG emissions by companies, and we don't even have a template in which we can all, you know, measure against this. So this is, but yet we're looking to regulate this. So that's a lot of things I've thrown at you, and you can sort of pick what you want, and, and maybe we can start with maybe it's your holdings, maybe it's your funds, but overall the market, I think you're aware of, you know, where it's trending and where it's going, and, and this movement against oil and gas. I'd like to just jump in there um, and talk about that stuff.
0: Yeah, sure, no, a lot to unpack there. Um, you know, a lot of topics to cover. You know, I think starting with our view of, of the energy market and where we see valuations in the context of the commodity is probably a, a good start. And you know, I think we, you know we're not the only ones. The sell side community has written extensively about this, but we've seen look a significant disconnect between equity valuations and you know where we see the uh, this, the commodity price trade. And, and we, even if we look uh, you know out to, uh, this 12, 24 months on the strip, historically the correlation between the upstream equities track pretty closely to that strip commodity price and we've seen really a disconnect over the last you know 6 months call it um, to a point where you know it's really you have to ask the question what what is driving that disconnect what is um, what is what is challenging the market to to find interest in in these names and i think you hit on a couple of those those aspects and and we'll just we'll we'll touch on those you know, I think obviously we you know we're working through a commodity environment where there is a, a significant amount of spare capacity that remains on the sideline. And you know with Opec's recent decision to um to scale back on or taper cuts, uh, we will see you know additional ver- barrels come to market. And we think over time as that spare capacity is exhausted, we think the market will will begin to warm uh, to diminished uh, let's call it oversupply risks. Um so we think that's that's driving part of of the uh, unwillingness of the, the investment community to 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 come back to the uh, to the upstream sector and the other thing that i think um, is, is certainly significant and and you mentioned it in a couple different ways is this movement towards uh, esg and you know the upstream sector and the broader energy sector has has been i think pretty uh pretty responsive fairly responsive as it relates to the um, the uh, e the s and the g the Social and the governance issues. I mean, those are the kind of the low-hanging fruit of uh, uh, whether it's you know E S or G. Those are the low-hanging fruit items that can be easily addressed. And governance, certainly, we've seen a move over the last year, year and a half, with not just in the upstream space, but in the midstream space, a move more towards a shareholder-friendly capital allocation decisions. You know, the, the, the industry obviously enjoying robust commodity prices is now able to. Uh, you know, sell fund, pay down debt, and increasingly, we're seeing a return of capital to shareholders in the form of of dividends and stock buybacks. You know, on the social side, you know, we're seeing these companies, uh, you know, address, uh, you know, the 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 uh, makeup of their their corporate structure, their corp their 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 workforce, they're um, demonstrating a, a desire to be more inclusive. And have that workforce be more reflective of society. I think there's there's movement there. The harder part, and I think you know, getting to the heart of the matter here is the environmental aspect of the the ESG. And you know, whether it's Scott Sheffield at Pioneer, you know, over the last year and a half, um, been been a very strong proponent of of measurement, evaluation, measurement, and containment of of uh, emissions uh, associated with the drilling and, and production activities in West Texas. And I th- I think he's really the first one to call on the industry to self govern. Um, and I think, you know, uh, the rest of the industry, uh, particularly the upstream, the integrated as well, are now, now taking a more proactive approach to get ahead of potential regulation and the potential policy risks that come with, uh, government mandates in terms of, of reducing those emissions. But now, it's, what- it's, I was going to say, it's just one last thought. It just, it, you know, for an industry that is is being penalized for you know significant amount of greenhouse gas emission and i think we're seeing that penalty embedded in in the risk premium associated with what the cost might or might not be the market's having a hard time figuring out what that cost is right. going to be and you know we've seen a carbon market evolve in in Europe i think potentially that could that could happen here if that happens we could have a financial mechanism to very easily uh, determine what the value of that that emission is and and the, the market ultimately can differentiate those companies that are doing a good job at uh, reducing emissions, minimizing, uh, eliminating emissions. Uh, those companies will see those risk premiums diminish and those equities will outperform. And I think, you know, that would be good for, for the entire, um, in, in, you know, that would do very well to bring back investors to the space to see that the industry is, is resolving um, the emissions issue and, and putting a price on. So
1: you you kind of clarified that as two things, and I want to make sure I have this right. Is that so? Do you think the generalist because you know we've been talking about the loss of the generalist investor in oil and gas in in oil and gas equities, you know, for two years, for three years actually, you know, of of them sort of pulling out. And I wouldn't say all of that was was necessarily the e the environmental standpoint. And you know, I think if you listen to previous podcasts, I have a bone to pick with a with a lot of entities that talk about ESG and really don't actually focus on the S or the G, you know, and are, and are okay touting, you know, BlackRock is okay touting, you know, the E side, but they're um, clearly have, you know, human rights issues within Xinjiang and China on the S and the G. Um, and as a society, the fact that we're okay with, the fact that we're okay with pushing the environment stuff but not dealing with human rights issues is, is, is a little mind-blowing to me. But that aside, I think that you know we the societally people are focused on the e. How that translates into investing is a different is a different story. And I'm just wondering if if that's sort of your thesis is that you know if you can if these operators if upstream producers can get a hold of that e. And I would say that yes, while Pioneer has been really vocal, it's not just being vocal. I mean, folks in Denver, we, we have some of the highest air quality standards in the world in Colorado, and so folks. Companies in Colorado have had to adhere to stricter standards on an emissions standpoint than companies, you know, across the country. They just didn't. It wasn't as big of a deal to tout it. You know, and, you know, I think Chris Wright has uh, differentiated himself amongst, you know, oil field peers and how he his ESG report is really about energy poverty. Um, So I think folks on ESG and in the oil and gas community are taking it differently. And I would say across the board, you're right. I think Diamondback, Pioneer, all these guys have made, you know, comments on how they're, you know, what they're doing on the ESG side. I'm wondering that, and I do want to circle back to this your your macro view and oversupply, and and how folks think on oil price and how that weighs into investing. But I, I would like to is the, the is it enough whatever these operators are doing because the movement against oil and gas is very very strong. And I think that um, I I want to know if folks in the equity side in the investor community are interpreting that correctly. It's you know just because you're we're the operators are changing and doing things. I'm just concerned they're not going to see, you know, the dollars that they're investing in ESG. And I'm not saying they shouldn't invest in it, but are they going to see a return in a share price performance because of that? Um, it seems like there's a lot of things that have to come together for them to actually see that.
0: Yeah. So there's there's a couple of things. Will will you generate a return on ESG, you know, oriented investments? And as it relates to to energy investments, I think and we look at the renewable category as a collection of companies. It's not an industry per se that is uh, reflective of you know a longstanding, um, you know, uh, legal and regulatory financial practices. We, we've got a collection of technologies and companies that are sort of an, an amalgamation of, of let's call it, green technology. You know, each of those companies or those verticals, whether it be wind, solar, hydrogen, clean tech, uh, uh, battery power you know the, the rates of return um you know vary across across those subsectors and so you know on a case by case we could go through each of those and and we kind of lay out what our expectations are are for returns but you know there's no question that at this point the the return potential of those technologies is is very very well supported by um you know investment tax credits production tax credits uh, subsidies in the case of emerging technologies such as batteries and so you know, the, with the return being supported and interest there, rates. And, and of course, low interest rates. And and uh, of course, you know, in, in Europe, that's a, a big issue, particularly in Germany with the treasury uh, curve there being under zero um, with a government subsidy of those technologies earning a negative rate of return. It calls into question of the, the validity there. So that's that's obviously a, a key point. Um, but, you know, many of these sectors are competitive, you know, and you look at the solar cell manufacturing business, it's incredibly uh, competitive, most of the supply comes from China, the unit costs of production have come down dramatically given scale and technology. And for, you know, those that are wanting to make money in, in the sale of, of, uh, of uh, PV cells, it's incredibly difficult to, to make money. And, uh, you know, when you layer on additional challenges associated with a pandemic in terms of rising input costs, a supply chain tightness and logistical challenges it makes uh, generating a rate of return even more difficult and we've seen that in the most recent quarterly numbers for many of the uh, solar component manufacturing companies. So
1: and even Siemens, Siemens has even said that they're in a lot, they've warned in the past couple of quarters that their their margins are getting really thin on their large winter rinds, Right. So I mean we're seeing that that compression.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, we are and and you know so just to 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 summarize the point it's it's not a layup that you know investors are going to make money in ESG related equities that that's that we know for sure. Now if you're taking a longer term view and you are you know if you are physilo- philosophically married to the idea of being invested in ESG related assets well, then you can probably stomach some volatility over the short term right. and in the hope of, of realizing what is a significant penetration into a, a very large total addressable market. And I think that's what the long-term investors are really hoping for here. But, you know, in the meantime, valuations on many of the stocks it, across that renewable, let's call it a collection of companies, valuations remain uh, elevated. And, you know, on a quarter-to-quarter basis, these companies are going to have to demonstrate very strong execution in order to justify the valuations where they are. And so we've been very careful about that. And I know we're dovetailing into the stock selection process, but just to circle back to the, the ESG issue, you know, it's it, again, it's not a layup that investors make uh, easy money in, in, in these types of businesses just because they're ESG related. And we think that, you know, going back to traditional energy, I think hydrocarbons are, are going to have a place in, in in the marketplace for a long, long time. You're just not going to snap your fingers and transition to, Renewables in the form of wind or solar or hydrogen overnight. And, you know, particularly to your point, when you think about the number of, of energy consumers that are growing on a day to day basis, uh, bringing uh, those that are in less developed countries into a higher quality of living is going to require a lot of energy. And so, you know the the opportunity to move away from coal into natural gas. Um, that's a big part of the energy transition, and we and so we look at the energy transition more broadly. It's not just um, investing in renewables, but we're we're looking at the trends that are going to unfold over a longer period right. of time. Right,
1: but so. it's it, it's difficult, and you summarize that really well. And I think you you give me a lot of openings to sort of ask because there's a, a lot of different ways I want to take this, and we're still we are going to come back to your 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 some of your portfolios, and we're going to come back to this other piece on on you know, your macro view on on oil prices and and how, you know, U.S. equities, Diamondback, EOGs, companies like that can, you know, perform and we'll we'll circle back on on Q2 earnings. But this momentum that we have, so explaining the energy transition like that, and I, I don't That framework, you know, isn't a bad way to think about it. But when you're investing in equities, you know, stocks and equities, the momentum shift, and I think that so much of that momentum and interest into these stocks. I mean, Kathy Wood is a great example. I mean, she has doubled down so hard on tech, Um, and I I very much disagree with her philosophy, and and I certainly disagree with her position, um, her very bullish position on China. Um, I think that the crackdown in China and things happening in China are. Are extremely negative and it's 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 only going to get worse um, in, in China. And I also think that you know solar and wind are at severe risk um, because they are being they are made eighty uh, percent of all photovoltaic all is is made in China. And the risk that we find out that the majority of that is from uh, force a lot of that is from forced labor, not just in Xinjiang but with another part of the country. Um, you know that's already probably a reality. But when that comes out and people realize that it's going to be very hard for folks to buy that to buy that tech. So that's sort of a side. But I think that the momentum is sort of this is, a you know, you hear it, right? You listen to Bloomberg, you listen to CNBC, you listen to market commentators, and they're saying, look, our investors want more green in their portfolio. They want more ESG. They're doing this. So you have this momentum and this push. Um, and you also have the regulatory side. And I'm curious if this is, and I do think that, you know, the Biden administration's infrastructure plans and his spending have helped prop up a lot of these, you know, a, a, a portion of these equities, right? they there's a massive amount. There's a lot of money that's going to be going into green tech um, and into certain certain things. I don't think that that's you know historically speaking, you know, unless you're thinking like FDR and the and the New Deal, we di- we haven't had a time in history where it's it's quite the same. And I, and I'm talking you know rock bottom interest rates, you know, a massive massive push into into green tech, um, into businesses that aren't otherwise profitable, um, and a and a a, a big uh an administration that is, you know, hell bent on climate change and that is the number one priority as an administration. So that is, I to some degree, that's weighing on the market, right? That that's a, a positive catalyst for these 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 stocks. And I'm wondering, you know, this moment, you've been in this business. We we talked about the dot com bubble briefly, but how does this look like from a historical perspective? You know. I, to me, these are some of these are warning signs and flags and you obviously have to be really smart in how you navigate this and, 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 I'm, and I'm sure you can be and nimble in your portfolios and moving stuff around and thinking short-term, medium-term, long-term. But what does this look like to you? All the stuff I'm explaining and that you're, you're well aware of, of this administration and regulatory side, a risk to the market that maybe people aren't perceiving as accurately as they should. How do you guys think about that? How do you, how do you perceive that? And how do you well, liken it to history?
0: Yeah, well, let's we'll talk about what we envision, uh, you know, over the next probably six twelve months, from you know an admi- administrative activity level, sort of yeah. So let's let's talk about what we expect from the administration, you know, and what we've seen, and then we can kind of circle back to you know from from a comparative standpoint. What do we what do we envision for the marketplace, um, you know, today versus what we saw back in the the dot com era, the ninety nine two thousand era you know i think you know what we've seen thus far from the administration obviously is a more punitive approach to to um you know managing the the us uh, upstream sector and then of course the irony of of biden uh, doing about face and and asking opec to raise production levels last week that was a real slap in the face managed to to upset both environmentalists
1: all right folks we're back had a little technical difficulties there uh the super fun lo- life of doing podcasting Uh, But we are back and I'm just going to recap where we sort of were. So I was asking Ben about the momentum and the pressure from all the from the issue movement and everything that's taking place in the market and how that's actually translating into how you're the investment side. So and I was I was particularly uh, asking and pushing you on the regulatory burdens and pressure of, um, you know, of. All the money that's going into um, the green inflation trade, all the money that's coming in from the administration in terms of stimulus, all the money that's going into green tech, um, low interest rates and just the risks sort of to the market right now.
0: Yeah, no, let's unpack all that. You know, so the it's interesting, the Biden administration uh, earlier this year uh, signaled the the commitment to, um, you know, green initiatives with, uh, you know, a a, a statement after the climate summit summit when he uh, Announced that we'd be moving to accelerate the reduction in greenhouse gases uh, here in the United States, and, and by about 50 percent uh, by uh, 2030. And then, of course, uh, just last week we you know had the announcement that um, again from the Biden administration that we he wants to see the auto industry move towards fifty percent of auto sales um, move towards EVs um, by 2030. So you know what what we're getting is we're getting a lot of uh, rhetoric. We're getting Statements, but we're getting we're not getting very much in the way of um, you know concrete you know uh, whether it's a policy roadmap or structures that would would move our industries more towards um, you know or, or less greenhouse gas emission we, that's just not there and the reality is that there's a big difference between that ambitious rhetoric and the breathtaking changes in law that need to happen in order to bring about these changes. So, um, but nevertheless, we did get you know the the Senate passed the infrastructure bill last week. It's going to go to the House over the next couple months. But that, of the $1.2 trillion in spending, roughly 10% is going to go to uh, green technology that's going to go to energy uh, or electric transmission. It's going to go to uh, subsidized uh, battery technology, hydrogen. Um, You know, there there will be a a significant amount spent on cleanup as well. Um, But again, uh, you know, the power of the purse resides with Congress, and we're ultimately going to need to see the passing of legislation to move us uh, closer to reality in terms of you know m- making a more significant move towards, uh, you know, the, the uh, proliferation of renewable technologies as a bigger part of our energy
1: source. That money that's coming in, though, even if it's only ten percent, there's a lot of money sloshing around, right? And the, the that still has got the market um, viewing these green green tech very favorably, or at least it had. But I think all, also all that money sloshing around is definitely contributing to inflation, and that is a, a that weighs. Against um not just green tech but tech in general and and weighs it against it and I think you're it's kind of case in point of the fact that you know all we're having trouble, you know, even copper and gold, you know, copper and things are needing a lot of investment, but it won't necessarily get it or it has to actually, you know, ha- you have to put shovels on the ground and you have to dig this stuff out for it to work. So it does seem like there's a lot of talk, there's a lot of rhetoric, there's a lot of executive orders, but it's not necessarily translating into direct investment yet. Um, but that's what seems clouded from a market perspective is really, you know, how are equity, how is that folding out? How is that playing out in the equity world right now? Are folks saying, okay, it's a green light. So we go into it, or is it, And are valuations reflecting that or is it and, and is that reflective of, of why you guys and your funds, are, you're, you're taking a slower approach into how you transition into those assets? Yeah,
0: well, you know, for, for us, valuation is, is first and foremost, the key in making an investment decision. And so part of that is assessing the risks associated with with not just uh, renewables, but also uh, traditional hydrocarbon investments as, as well. But, you know, I think what this infrastructure bill does and this continued policy support by the Biden administration does, it, it, it de-risks, uh, you know, these the, the various investments for, for those that would need to feel as though there's, there's policy support coming, uh, continually coming down the road to, to support the, the businesses as they evolve and they mature and they, they, they eventually graduate to, um, to levels of profitability that are comparable with traditional hydrocarbons. I think you have there's a obviously a, a a contrast in the marketplace there's a divergence in opinion there's there's on the one side you have a, a cohort of of investors that believe that traditional energy is is going to go the way of the dinosaur on the other hand you have uh those that believe that there's really no way to substitute uh, the use of hydrocarbons in the, in the manufacture of steel and concrete you really can't change the Economic, the patterns of economic behavior that are that are interwoven with hydrocarbons being a primary source of energy—it's just not impossible to do that overnight. And so, you know, from an investor standpoint, um while we do see the policy as a, a driver and a, a de-risker, if you will, the investment merit has to stand on its own for these for these companies. And I mentioned there's as a collection of, of of companies. There's there's on a case-by-case basis, you know, subsector to subsector there there are, there are uh, very differing uh, levels of uh, investment merit that we could that we could characterize but you know again i think you go back to the big picture the energy transition for us is a is a gradual move it's not an overnight move and we believe that a, lo- a lower carbon intensity will mean a, d- a continued trend away for, from coal not just here in the us but abroad uh we in its place we think renewables will grow significantly and we believe that um that you know, natural gas will be a winner as well and so You know, when we place our bets, we look, you know, from time to time, you know, industry conditions, uh, uh, commodity fundamentals, whether it's regulatory or policy by the government. All those factor into what we believe are, you know, or or what we think are going to be the the, the underpinnings of investment merit for those various respective groups of of investments. And so when we place our bets today, what, you know, what do we see? Our our view is is. basically what I just laid out, in that we're going to continue to see hydrocarbon use in a cleaner fashion. We're going to see very cost-competitive wind and solar continue to grow with the help of policy support from the government, not just here in the U.S., but abroad, and uh, a continued uh, move towards a technology which will support battery uh, development and and, uh, broader use of a battery as as backup. I mean, there was a recently... uh, a large-scale battery pack uh, backup uh, power unit that was uh, went online in Ventura County, California. Of course, there was a the high-profile fire at uh, a Tesla battery pack in, in Australia. So these these battery technologies are going to take time to evolve. We do think the technology is going to get better and, and the cost will come down. So we have to be mindful of that as investment opportunity as well. Um, but um, but in a bigger sense, you know, we we believe that hydrocarbons are going to remain a significant component in the primary fuel mix and and where we see relative investment opportunity today is in many of these companies particularly natural gas and some of the uh, some of the integrateds as well even some of the oil service companies um there will be uh, tailwinds that that we enjoy coming out of this this recovery from from the pandemic that also uh you know benefit from secular trends along with the, uh, the support for of renewable technologies, so we see a combination of ways to win
1: right so and and all that's all that's very valid and I certainly respect your, your views on that i I mean I would uh, like to pick apart a little bit because I mean you guys have a fund called BP Energy transition fund and it's in it's on your website and you have the whole and you have your holdings listed and this is where I kind of think the market is uh and I don't think this is a bad thing but I, I think it's a reality check um because forty seven 0.7% of your 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 top 10 holdings are largely EOG Diamondback PDC Comstock Conoco you know and the list goes on and th- I think for many reasons those are I think those are strong names for long term but the problem is this is I want to get back to this generalist investor and the 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 regulatory risk piece that I'm talking about cuz I see less um you know th- there's potentially regulatory risk and that you have more stuff coming down from administration down the pipeline on on ESG regulation on GHG emissions that could impact some of these, but in terms of these these performers, most of these guys in our Q2 earnings and in the earnings season we just had in the wrap up was, you know, some really big themes that were really present, which was share buybacks. It was these operators talking about how they really thought that they were undervalued. That really looking at strip pricing and and even even pricing below, you know, current levels that these guys are profitable. I mean, we've seen big, large-scale independents making a lot of free cash flow right now. And yet the market is not showing them that love. And, you know, I, I've watched them and listened to every earnings call for years and this song and dance that they're doing recently with the ESG thing doesn't seem to me... I know I know it matters in a portfolio against your peers and and against your who you're next to and on, on how you have to compete from an ESG scale, but that you know, it kind of comes back to that one of those first things you were saying about the macro and prices. Is it, you know, prices moving up? Is it uh, the investors getting comfortable with less volatility in oil prices that they can come back to this? Because obviously, if you guys are investing in this and, you know, the operators themselves are buying back their stock, they think this is going to go up. And my question is, what are the things that need, you know, I have my own opinions on it and I'm happy to share them. But what does it need, you know, what is it going to take to get those investors back? And what is it going to take to increase that share price and actually give them those returns? And I think it's a number of things, but I'd like to get your opinion on that.
0: Yeah, no, I think it's, it's a couple of things. I mean, I think it's executing on, on the business model and it's, you know, it's uh, delivering very competitive uh, returns on invested capital and delivering, you know, cash return to shareholders. And we're and we're seeing that we've seen that over the last several quarters. Um, but you know, that's going to become the, the, really the price of doing business, the cost of doing business to attract capital back to the sector beyond that. And it goes back to what we were talking about addressing the E and the ESG. And if you really want to bring back the generalist investor, you know, there, again, there may be a certain segment of that, that invest in, in, in institutional investor that's unwilling to go back to traditional energy based on their view of, of the future and, and what they see as the demise of, of traditional energy and hydrocarbons but again we 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 are opposed to that view we you know that may happen 40 50 years down the road but um we're going to continue to need hydrocarbons so we're, we're we're you know we believe that that that's the case so we're in a sense we're opposed to the way that um i think much of the investment community that looks at energy is is thinking about hydrocarbons but you know it's interesting there's a there's an analog here and you know i think the the tobacco stocks in the 90s after um, the settlement with the U.S. government. I mean, there was there was an argument against investing in tobacco, and it was it was based on you know concerns over demand, much like oil demand concerns exist today. Um, it was an issue. There was an issue of social concerns. Is it is it you know philosophically right to invest in in something that's that's viewed as being bad? And of course, there was regulatory risk. And you know, it's interesting. Philip Morris uh, outperformed the S and P 500 by a factor of 20 times uh, between mid 2000 and 2016. And we you know, we think as more and more cash is returned to the investor, as investors become comfortable with their, you know, the the industry's ability to recognize, measure, evaluate, right. and uh, and eliminate uh, emissions, we think that's going to that risk of. of of owning these companies is going to diminish and and uh, we'll see an appreciation and value for many of these companies
1: and and how much so, of you know and i think to me i mean just personally there's a difference between uh you know from a stock performance, I think you're right and and certainly I think people have likened you know that stock performance before, but I think that and that really Philip Morris's demand is that demand was relatively you know it was maintained um you know i I think it's different because you know from a global standpoint i mean Oil and gas companies are providing a valuable, a, a needed commodity versus a a desired commodity or a desired thing, uh, such as cigarettes. Or so, th- though this bringing this generalist investor back, bringing folks back, and them seeing those valuations. And I think it's also something that once somebody starts making some money and it starts working, and and you know, sh- once you has to drop and people have to sort of follow suit and say, I need. You know, I need more exposure to different things in my portfolio. I can't be, you know, I've said it on the podcast before and I say it to clients, you can't be all tech all the time. You know, I don't think Kathy Woods portfolio is resilient. Um and I, I think it's you, you have to have, you know, having oil and gas in your portfolio sort of especially in an inflationary environment is something folks need. And we started hearing that I'd say a few months ago. You know, you started seeing, you know, folks at least talk about saying, okay, you know, we were they're actually talking to their clients about putting a little bit more oil back into their portfolios. And I think while they're not touting, we're not seeing that necessarily from a media standpoint on CNBC or Bloomberg. I I, I think that's probably happening to some degree. But I also think is the you know, oil prices being, you know, increasing, it's kind of the story for the U.S. is right, is the question of, well, how come these operators haven't increased their increasing output? And I would say, you know, their oil prices have jarred them. You know, last year was such a jarring, you know, impact to the industry of negative oil prices and and just um, the devastation that the market hit and, and all the things that they had to deal with it, not just being prices, but not actually being able to move their crude. And so I think that, you know, oil prices and your your view on sort of the macro and saying is it is it the volatility that needs to go away so it's the is it a a stability in oil prices i would say that to me would be something that from an investment standpoint if i'm an outsider now I'm looking into oil and gas, it would be that, yeah, prices are 65 and they're hanging there and that's steady. And it makes these companies, their, their profitability far more, much more stable than this massive swing. Otherwise, they're probably going to have, we're going to have to have all these hedging. So I'd imagine now it's just how long does it stay there and how does that bring the investor back and how well do they perform on a free cash flow standpoint?
0: Yeah, no doubt. I mean, reduced volatility is always a good thing for financial valuation. And I, you know, when you look at equity values in many of these energy companies, as we started our discussion, there is a very stark, you know, disconnect between um, what historically has been a good correlation between the longer-term strip of, of the commodity and the underlying performance of, of the equities. And I, you know, I think as and we talked about the, you know, diminishing capacity, uh, spare capacity at OPEC as they continue to bring volumes back online. But yeah, but stability in the commodity is a, is a big part of it. But I think it's, it's cash return. And I think that's, um, you know, going back to the Philip Morris example, there's a significant amount of cash return, a very decent, a very attractive dividend yield that that stock pays. And I, I would imagine as, as, as the industry stabilizes through the recovery and the pandemic and, uh, and producers continue to demonstrate capital discipline and shareholder uh, focus on shareholder return, um, that over time, yields will look very, very attractive. And, you know, we're not going to live in a world forever where money is effectively free and interest rates are suppressed and artificially low. Um, I hope we don't because I don't, I don't think the world will be, will work very well and the economic and financial world won't work very well in that environment. Um, and there will be a time when, uh, this investment, a cash return or an attractive yield becomes more, uh, more attractive to investors. And I think, um, I think that day is probably coming sooner rather than later. And, and we were talking about interest rates. Look, you know, you, you, as we normalize from this, this pandemic, um, you know, going into the pandemic, the 10-year treasury was two, at 2%. I mean, at some point, we have, to, we have to come to terms with the fact that rising interest rates are actually a good thing for our financial markets. And they, they indicate a, a, an improvement in economic health in our economy. And, you know, while, you know, if we look back to 99 and 2000, the Fed raised interest rates three times in 99. They raised rates two times in 2000. We could be setting up for a somewhat similar environment, given the risk appetite that we see in the marketplace today, where traditional assets, traditional hydrocarbon uh, companies, companies that generate very good levels of cash flow and return that cash to investors, that they become the outperformers relative to the technology names. And so it's very likely that in, in that environment, you know, you have an increased you know, sort of focus on on energy, traditional energy, which you know, in in today's world, at today's commodity price, you know, are generating very very good returns. So, and I think you that know.
1: you paint that's a that's a bullish. Uh, I mean, that's a good that's a that's the scenario outlook in which you know energy could technically outperform. I think that's fascinating. I also think it, that probably dovetails and comes back into how they actually perform because. I always explain to folks the way I view operators it does come back to how well you're drilling these wells um this you know and most the trends and themes that we heard over the last quarter were certainly longer laterals faster drilling times faster completion times you know the ability to hedge against inflation with offsetting these costs you know I think it was Exxon had talked about their, their ability to, you know, they didn't need as many rigs and they didn't say that directly, but essentially that they just said, hey, if you look at our lateral length and the speed at which we're drilling and you compare that to our rig count, you know, in 2018, we don't need as many rigs. And they say that in particular because they went from 55 rigs and now they have eight rigs. But overwhelmingly, most operators are, are doing all that. And I think that when you're looking at this as a whole, this reminds me a lot. And it's not the same. I mean, the, the profitability of these companies is, is very is real. You're seeing real free cash flow generation. But it does remind me a lot of 2014. And when these companies were, you know, companies got smarter. And they took time in the downturn. Um, and not as smart as they could have, but they took that time. They got smarter. They landed the, the well bore better. They landed the, the well in... Re- slightly better rock and incremental moves like that. In addition to these incremental moves on lateral lengths and efficiencies and everything, they'll add up to a little bit more production and, and, you know, they all add up to be a little more resilient. And I would say that they, you know, they're relatively muted in, you know, they're not drill, baby drill. The, certainly the private companies are. Um, but I also think, are they leaving money on the table? Because you, we don't have a promise of oil price stability. And I do think that, you know, IEA, and I talked about this in my last podcast, but the International Energy Agency, you know, came out with their monthly report, you know, and they were kind of warning of saying, okay, well, we'll basically be perfectly in line for supply and demand or, or relatively tight there for the third and fourth quarter of this year. But the, they talk about the risk of, of being oversupplied next year. And the reason they're saying that is because, you know, demand, demand gets a little muted, I think for the virus this year. And then next year with all these, you know, the OPEC supply additions that are coming back, we already have Saudi Arabia, well over 9 million barrels per day of production, you know, OPEC production is increasing. And that is part, I think some of the softness we're seeing, in oil prices right now, just this added supply, not that it's not being absorbed, but that it's, it's there. And it wasn't there a couple months ago, but you sort of have this, this, it's, it's, there's a change a little bit in rhetoric and tone from this super cycle and this bullish cycle, and oil prices going to 120. I haven't heard Goldman Sachs or anyone get on TV lately and say oh, oil prices going to 120 um, because of of these things. And I think that supply, you know, folks, you know, certainly OPEC and Saudi Arabia, Saudi Saudi Aramco has come out and said we're going to we're pr- putting that money into capex and we're going to produce. BP and Shell, of course, are are not saying that. And they're trying to pivot out of oil and gas. But I mean, U.S. producers, I have to to say, look at them and say, you're making this money. You make money by drilling and producing oil. I personally think they should be producing a little more, whether it's five or 10 percent eking out a little bit more production, because if prices are to slip, they've lost that opportunity to capture those gains. And, you know, and they need to, because that's that's the game of the oil market is that the folks outside of the U.S. are going to do it. And I'm not I'm not certain these guys shouldn't be trying to increase output a little bit more. You know, over the next, now for the next year?
0: No, I mean, it, you know, that's, it's a valid argument, although, you know, historically the, the industry's decision to ramp spending in a pro-cyclical manner has always ended up in, in disaster. And, and yeah. when downturns ultimately emerge, it's hindsight is 2020 and, and um, the capital destruction uh, has just, has been, has been awful. And I, you know, I think that's, you know, we're at a point where we're evolving as an industry and we recognize that it's incredibly difficult to predict where commodity prices are going to go. And, and for investors to, you know, to retain an interest in the sector, they have to be rewarded. And I think that's one of the governance uh, issues, the alignment of, of shareholder and executive, man, uh, you know, and management incentives has, has probably been no greater than any time in my, in my career. And I, that's a very favorable change. And that means, you know, managing your production growth only to a level to sustain uh, existing volumes and grow minimally. Um, at, at, which a le- at which level provides, you know, some degree of growth for the benefit of either debt reduction or, you know, equity appreciation. And I and I and I think you know we are at a point now where the industry is there. So, you know, the privates are a different story. They answer to a, a you know a different constituency, and they're going to continue to to build to grow. And although we're, we are seeing you know some zero premium deals, we're seeing privates right. sell to publics. Um, you know, and I I would imagine there's probably very little you know uh, gain to be had in some of the in some of those private deals that we've recently seen. It's it's uh but but nevertheless it is it is a game of scale now. I mean, what that was the major change with the shale boom is that you know the industry really moved towards a manufacturing phase. Right, we're trying to wring out cost efficiencies and productivity gains. We as, as long as we can do that, you know, if you're in a scale business, it doesn't matter whether you're producing widgets or producing oil. If you can reduce your costs and 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 take advantage of those scale benefits, well, then you know that's going to be a that's going to generate a, a benefit to um uh, to the investor and to the to the and equity owner. so
1: those those investors, though, and i I only want to interrupt here because you're on this point, and i want I would like to take you to take it a little bit further or question. I've always had a bone to pick with when I meet with investors or analysts and stuff, and I think about you know they're like, now you you hear Pioneer and you hear all these operators, and they say, you know, Folks ask them on the earnings call, are you going to hedge? And they'll say, you know, and I, I, you have heard more questions about hedging now. And I think it's because folks want to know, you know, are you going to be able to maintain that, you know, your maintenance capital and then, and you know, grow by 5 to 10% or whatever it is. And I think this question hedging is interesting because you never need to hedge when, when prices are good. And then hedging is all very important if, if prices are to slip. And so there is a risk you know that folks and OPEC is seeing it, that there's a risk that folks sort of hedge in the second half of next year or the beginning part of next year and personally I think as they should to maintain stuff but the investors I think it was it was Scott Sheffield who said in the earnings call you know we'll wait to hear from our we're going to start doing the road shows again or we're going to listen to our investors and what they want if they want these variable dividends and share buybacks and everything and and he I think it was with, directly with regards to hedging and I thought the problem I have is investors change what they want over time. And, you know, they push these. I've they And I'm not saying you or BP Capital in particular, but I'm saying investors push shale companies to buy into the Permian at any and all costs, no matter what it costs. In the heart of the downhill when prices were sub fifty, they pushed them to go buy that. And then immediately the investors turned around and said, Oh, and by the way, you need to be free cash flow positive. And that's that was ridiculous. And I think so the the whims of investors, which are now super into ESG, change. And operators have to deal with that. And I'm not saying every operator has done a super great job of running their business and not burning cash, which which many have, but at the same time, they were pushed to do it. You know, they were pushed to go buy into the Permian, and that's what the investors want. And now that they've you know, they buy into the Permian and then, you know, and then they say, Oh my gosh, well, you spent too much money on that. And I kind of wonder, I know things seem calmer now and partly that's because of price, but are there any risks into that? And do you think like, you know, there's a better dialogue between you're kind of describing it, but is there a better dialogue between the operator and the investors? And, you know, I I don't think every 30 year old New York analyst, 35 year old New York analyst knows exactly what they're talking about because they're not in the field, but I'm just wondering, is that, is there a better, understanding between the two of this is what we need to do to move forward. And this is oil. These are oil companies. They need to be producing oil.
0: Yeah, I think in today's environment, I think there's a, you know, there's a agreement between Wall Street and, you know, let's call it the oil patch. I think there's a recognition, a mutual understanding between both that, you know, again, that the industry has historically done a a fairly bad job of generating, uh, you know, acceptable returns on, on capital employed. And, you know, as an alternative to you know, and you go to the point of hedging, you know, we're we're you know what we've seen over the last couple of quarters, these companies have have, have accelerated the debt repayment to a point where many of their them are going to achieve their their debt level targets, whether it's one or one and a half times leverage. And at that point, you know, the balance sheet becomes a natural hedge, right? Like you know, you're not going to have to necessarily go and hedge, uh, you know, significant amount of production to offset your base decline rates. You know, you're not going to have to hedge. You have more of-
1: liquidity. Yep.
0: You have, you have the ability to self-fund, and you, and so you have the ability to take more risk with your balance sheet. And I think you know, that, is a, that is a great place to be from an equity holder's perspective to benefit not only from you know, a, a base business that has visibility in terms of, of production sustainability, but also the opportunity to capture the optionality associated with the upside of the commodity. And historically, those two necessarily haven't been a part of the investment proposition for investors. Yep. If you had the opportunity to benefit or, or participate in commodity upside, that usually came with high levels of debt. That came with overspend.
1: Yep. You know,
0: and, and, and we're seeing the, and we're not seeing that today. We're seeing these companies, uh, you know, sell fund and pay down debt and and now buy back shares. And if they can get to a point where the balance sheet's resilient, well, they have the ability to participate in significant upside in the commodity. And so, you know, that's that's kind of the best of both worlds for for investors. So I think that's that's very attractive. Um, and in the environment I, today.
1: I think that's extremely well described. And I agree with that because I was thinking back to, you know, if, if you know, folks, when a lot of folks didn't understand hedging a couple of years ago, and I, I would always explain, you know, you, folks like Exxon, big companies don't really have to hedge because they have the liquidity, they have, they have the balance sheet, and they traditionally can handle that risk and they can, they can ebb and flow with that. And as these companies become far more, more profitable, as they have the balance sheet flexibility, they won't need to. And if that can be translated and the generalist investor, I think, can understand that, that the risk, you know, it's less, you know, yes, higher oil prices and less fall prices are great, but really, you know, the listening to these operators, you know, paying down debt, you know, pushing down, paying down debt and having just greater flexibility. I mean, I, I think this, the concept of, you know, share buybacks and variable dividends, those are all, all, all sort of great things, but I, I, I like, I mean, even a few years ago, companies like Extraction were doing share buybacks, and companies were were borrowing money, taking debt to do share buybacks when it didn't seem to make any sense at all. And now, you know, obviously they're not; folks are not borrowing um, and and taking on debt to do share buybacks. So it seems that they're literally doing share buybacks because they think that's the best, you know, at least one strategy to do with some of the capital. Um, and some of that cash on hand because they think that their the stock will be going up. So I, I think that it sort of makes sense. I'm just that needs to be translated. I think into the overall market, and there needs to be sort of a, a more probably a more favorable view on oil and gas and just the profitability of these companies.
0: No, I cu- I couldn't agree more. And therein lies the investment opportunity. You know, again, the, whether yep. it's a lack of recognition of of the visibility that uh, associated with you know resilient balance sheets and and commodity optionality. Um, or whether it's, you know, the, the risk associated with ESG. I mean, these, these companies, I think over time, the risk will, will fade and, and the, the risk premiums will fade and the stocks will begin to outperform. Um, as I, you know, and it, it, we're kind of in a show me state. I mean, we, the industry needs to put up, you know, sequential quarters of, of discipline and, and cash repayment. Um, I think that, you know, if we can hang here in the 55 to $65 level, you know, longer term, and I, it's clearly a, a price. That's below, which I think the Saudis would like to see. I mean, if OPEC can, can sustain uh, their end of the deal too in terms of restraining supply, well, then I think we're going to be in pretty good shape. But, um, you know, I, I, we have a favorable outlook on, on oil and for natural gas, and, I, you know, underpins our enthusiasm for much of the upstream sector.
1: Do you, does your view on, on oil, I mean, so if oil prices were, and I'll just, I need to probably full disclosure. I mentioned this in other podcasts. I, I think I bought a, li, a tiny bit of Exxon, a tiny bit of EOG several years ago. I have not made money on it, but I just said those are my, my long only. So I do not trade them. Um, but do you guys have a view? I mean, if, if oil prices are to go to 55 um, obviously, prices will, you know, shares will slip and, and things like that. But to me, it would almost be a, a, in theory, it would be a buying opportunity if I still, if I see the response of those companies and how they react to it. If they turn tail and run, you know, and they drop all the activity, because you, you were commenting on, you know, it, it hasn't worked out for operators to invest, you know, to, to drill when, when you know, increase production when prices are going up. And I agree with that, except I also, dis, I also don't like when they drop, when prices go down, um, because truthfully, Uh, and I believe this with all my heart and soul, you should have been drilling in 2020. You should have been drilling and completing in 2020. um, Maybe not bringing those wells on, but you absolutely, you had rock bottom drilling prices, rock bottom everything prices. And um, companies that did not drill and complete wells missed out. And the companies that we did see were big, were company, private companies like Taprock and companies that just went to town. And now they're all going to town and they're spending, you know, aggressively in upcycle. They should have been spending really aggressively because. We knew prices weren't going to be at minus 37 forever. We knew they weren't going to be at 40 forever. I mean, anyone with with the back of the envelope, you know, horrible macro, you know, skills could figure that we, we couldn't stay at $40 oil. So, but they didn't. And they missed sort of, to, in my mind, a lot of operators missed the opportunity to really, you know, be at a point where they could ramp up production now. And and part of that may be because they didn't, public companies didn't want to show that they were ramping up. Um, but I mean, EOG at least commented that they bought all their tubulars um last year for 2021. Um and so they, you know, were smart enough to see the market. And I just think that there's opportunities then where, you know, you can really and you gotta tra- you got to explain that to the market too. You got to explain that to your investors. And I mean, whenever EOG would pivot, you know, to a, a thinner part of the the, you know, the Eagleford, they would at least try to bring their there are folks along saying, Hey, these wells are going to get a little worse. Um, but just let, you know, we're moving to a thinner part of the the reservoir, but they're going to get a little worse, but just, you know, here's our guidance. And I'm just not sure every, every company doesn't do the best job in translating that. And the more they focus on ESG and the more they focus on, you know, share buybacks and all this stuff, I still think that they really need to translate what they're doing on the ground and make sure investors understand that this is, uh, You know they've gotten to a point where things are cheaper, faster. You know it is more of a manufacturing, um, and that they can hold the line on that, and they still have the flexibility in their balance sheets. But what happens if you know if prices drop to fifty five tomorrow? Are people going to freak out, or do you think this it's an opportunity to sort of layer layer in more?
0: No, you know, look, we you know we could hypothesize on all kinds of pricing environments. I do think if look drilling budgets are as you know are generally set you know at the beginning of the year, if not the end of the prior year, and so. Those budgets are based on outlooks for the commodity that are generally conservative in nature, and so operating budgets and operating plans are are generally not going to change all that much with you know with volatility in the commodity. Now, extreme volatility obviously would create some pause, and we saw that with the downturn last uh, last year um, with the onset of the pandemic. But it's hard, you know, obviously it's hard to get an organization to ramp spending into what is you know was a once in a 100 year event, and I know it was tough for. For risk managers to, to, you know, even financial risk managers to determine what the what the potential outcome was for the commodity um, at the depths of oil being negative last year. So, you know, that's that's tough to handicap. But, you know, I think at this point, I mean, I I think there's a a recognition that the that the oil market is under repair. The gears of recovery are turning in the right direction. We are seeing spare capacity um, diminish with OPEC volumes coming back. Um, we, the un, degree of underspend in the industry has been severe. Um, you know, we're going to be about 50 per, 50% below spending levels that we saw in 2019 from an upstream CapEx standpoint. So, you know, that's going to, that's going to have an impact on the industry with respect to, you know, offsetting declines, not just here in the US, but, but abroad. And, um, you know, that does set up a longer term upside case that's very favorable. Now, um, you know, I think what we're seeing today in a move from, you know, WTI being, you know, down ten dollars or so from you know what was it June, July sort of levels. You know, we've we've seen a pullback a little bit in the commodities, and there's no question that you know macro um, traders are are driving some of the performance in the equity that that you know generally track the commodity. But I you know I think you know if we were to move back to 55, we we would continue to see some weakness in the equities. But again, I you know I feel like the demand outlook is is very strong and the recovery from the pandemic. Um, is, is going to continue on to unfold, whether it's getting through the Delta variant or continued vaccination. Um, we'll st- we'll continue to see mobility trends improve, particularly with jet fuel demand. That's that's going to happen over time. And eventually we will get out of this. I mean, I, I wouldn't bet against the human race when it comes to, you know, deploying ingenuity, ingenuity and uh, technology to, to solve a problem. That's, we've seen time and time again, that they're capable of doing that. And so I'm I'm favorable in the outlook for demand and and for um, for economies and ultimately the, the consumption of, of hydrocarbons that will will come with that. And you know, obviously, the the energy industry has not been in the growth mode in a long period of time. And I think you know, the gro- all the fiscal stimulus, the economic stimulus that's that's coming from uh, economies uh, around the world, governments around the world, um, you know, that's going to play a part in it as well. And I think um, you know, when you consider that the contribution to demand that comes from that stimulus. Um, you know, we see that as a favorable tailwind as well. We think that, uh, you know, a combination of those demand drivers should should set up well for a commodity price buoyancy over the next several years.
1: Right. Well, uh, you know, Ethan always pushes me to do a, um, a, this this near-term price forecasting, um, and I did it on my own uh, yesterday when I was doing it. Uh, so, I mine sort of, I don't like near-term price forecasting, and I had a pretty wide band that I was in. I was 65 to 75. So, I was right. I think I always say it's pretty easy to be right in a band like that. I like that you have this bull. I'm, I'm with you on demand. I think demand is steadily going to grow. We've certainly shown it in the U.S. Um, that we've we've uh, surprised the upside um, on demand. We obviously have, you know, massive throughput at TSA at airports um, that has doubled where it's been waning a little bit. I think we'll see some some jagged a, a bit of a jagged recovery as as you know unemployment benefits roll off folks have to get back to work and the nervousness about this uh, about the virus but overwhelmingly people have sort of really shot to the upside over the summer and we've seen that demand i i have more of a, a cautious approach on um a super cycle in oil prices simply because um production follows suit. production follows price. And the U.S., you know, some U.S. operators may be less inclined to increase output tomorrow, but we're already the dramatic increase we've already seen in OPEC at well, nearly 27 million barrels per day. Um, it's it's ratcheting up and we're going to see it and the market's going to have to just disseminate, understand and absorb that. And I don't think it's a it's a the market can handle this production. Um, but I also I, I'm not as I don't have the doomsday outlook that That folks can't increase output. I do think that the Saudis can increase output. I do think Russia can increase output, and I think United Emirates wants to. Lots of countries want to increase output, especially at these price levels. Um, I'm gonna, uh, for technical reasons and making sure this this podcast uploads, I'm gonna ask that we we probably close. The last thing we probably didn't get into, and the the only sort of modest disagreement I'd have is on you know the the risk, um, the short term risk of of politics and dynamics of the. You know, I mean, I think you guys are the way you've sort of weighted your portfolio and how you've explained how you invest actually makes a lot of sense. And it sounds like you can be nimble. But I think that, you know, as you mentioned, with Congress not putting a lot of this into law yet, and this is the executive order and it has to translate into reality that there is risk, both from a a Fed standpoint. um, And I mean, we have a we have a very inflationary environment in the U.S., we have a dovish fed on that inflation um and we have a you know we we have a administration who i i think is a little bit undetermined right now on how they see inflation i mean the the press uh, secretary just last week was talking about how if inflation is not as bad as people think and it's it's recovering and it's it's transitory and i think there's a reality that um when things cost more um, and it eats in. Already people are feeling the bite of higher gasoline prices in the U.S., especially to the middle and lower income, and they're feeling the bite of higher prices. And I think uh, if inflation goes unchecked, not just in the U.S., but around the world, it does in turn impact oil economic growth and oil demand. So it's just a concern. It's it's something I think about, and I think from a regulatory risk standpoint, I think that this uh, this administration creates as, as many opportunities as it might create in the green sector for investing. Um, the fact that it, it's political, and it's a four-year cycle, this can go away tomorrow, just like they did um, from Trump to Biden. So I think that's just a risk of, but I think that you probably look at the equity market and you're, you know, you assess that and approach it and move around your portfolio accordingly.
0: Yeah, we certainly do. And and we adjust based on what we believe are going to be changes in policy and regulatory impediments to to grow in the industry or or the opposite, um, you know, to crimp the industry. So uh yeah no there's it's uh flexibility to your point being nimble and the ability to to pivot across uh, value chains uh both traditional and renewable i think is is going to be um you know a, a beneficial quality but I mean, we think we're unique in the marketplace and we think we you know it gives, gives us that uh that element of 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 um you know, whether whether it's flexibility or or being thoughtful about what you know the best way to make money, we think we have the we're equipped to do that with our strategy, the way it's set up. So. Awesome.
1: Yeah. yeah. Uh. Well, I um um in the in the um. Favor of time, I think, as Ethan would say, a natural close, and I'm forcing sort of a natural close, so I apologize for that. But I really appreciate you taking the time. I very much enjoyed the conversation. I'm glad that you were okay with my uh, pushing you and sort of the banter and, and disagreeing a little bit, um, but loves your insights, and I really appreciate you jumping on the podcast with us.
0: Well, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, and and uh, look forward to staying current with you going forward.
1: Absolutely, uh, and we'll definitely have you guys back on, back again soon, and and to recap on this stuff. So thank you very much again. This is um, episode twenty six of the Petronerds podcast. I'm your host Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petronerds. and I've my guest has been uh, Ben Coke with BP Capital, full of lots of insights. Um, so we'll we'll be with you next week. Um, thanks, guys. Bye.